This is Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Matt, here we are. We we survived horror month. Mm-hmm. We're the last girls. That's, okay. That's a horror trope, isn't it? The last girl. Final, final, final girl. girl. Final girl. Yeah, final girl. Yep. Yeah. That's why I was I didn't respond. I was confused. Yes. Sorry yeah. about that. Last girl. What the fuck is that? Yep. Yeah. I don't know. I thought after four straight weeks of horror, you would have retained something. The sentiment was there. Okay. All right. That's fine. Are you still watching horror? Are you like still in the throes of it or- well, in the spirit of the show in Horror Month, I did check a few blind spots off my list. Mm-hmm. I watched three movies for the first time. Are these like deep cuts? These are not deep cuts. Or are these like popular like Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Uh, I think I think two of I wouldn't say any of them are deep cuts. I'd say one is a very like surface level obvious one, and the other two are sort of that next step down. You know, you know, definitely a must for 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 horror fans. Okay. So the first child's play, which I had never seen. Oh wow! Yep. Did, did you like it? I didn't realize that right off the bat, like it just goes right to crazy town. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so it which, op- so which ones have you seen? Uh Bride of Chucky. Oh, okay. And I think maybe Seed of Chucky. Okay. Very different. Very different. So I think I, I, I was not expecting it to open with a uh, with Brad Dourif in a gunfight, and then using like a voodoo incantation to put himself in a doll yeah <laughs> and then have lightning blow up a toy store yeah i think i slightly prefer the second one okay yeah it's a little i mean it slows down for a bit so it takes a little bit to get to the fireworks factory but i think it looks a little nicer wait there's a fireworks factory no i meant that metaphorically there's actually a, <laughs> a toy factory so but anyway uh and it looks great the second one looks Awesome. Okay. Yeah, really well directed. I can't remember the director right now, but I I like the Chucky series quite mm-hmm. a bit. And if you listen to all four of our horror episodes, I certainly had some contentious thoughts on horror franchises, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I really do like the Chucky movies, and I think it's because of Don Mancini, who's the writer creator of Chucky, and he's kind of been the overseer of the series, and even directed the final two entries. Um, Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky, which are a lot of fun, and he kind of also shows off that he is a capable director, and he has a lot of knowledge about the horror genre. Um, so that's why I think those movies kind of work consistently across nice. the board. Yeah. Uh, Black Christmas. Oh, I love Black Christmas. I really loved Black Christmas. You know, superficially, you hear a slasher movie set at a sorority house. You have certain expectations. A lot of maybe gratuitous sex and nudity and sort of, you know, cliched, um, you know, like bimbo sorority type characters. Sure. And then I ended up watching what felt like, you know, could have easily been sort of like a, a slasher movie made for the Me Too era. <laughs> There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of awful things that these women are sort of dealing with in their day to day lives on top of the, yeah. the killer in the house. And no one listens to him. No one listens yeah. to them. It's interesting you say that because there's a new version coming out soon. It's directed by Sophia Tockel, and she's done a few other really promising horror movies. And it looks like it's really running with that premise where it doubles down on the sorority aspect of it and the expectations of being in a sorority. So it it looks pretty interesting. Yeah, I was really taken by it. And um, it's directed by Bob Clark, who directed A Christmas Story. And 
what was, I mean, it definitely, you, you can tell this is a person who went on and had a lot of success with comedies because the comedic timing and even some of the dialogue uh, was really great in this. And it really, um, it surprised me in a lot of ways. And visually, there's a lot of fun stuff happening. And it predates uh, Halloween, which uses a lot of, like the first person kind of perspective that Black Christmas uses. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bob Clark also directed another great horror movie uh, that not a lot of people are aware of called Death Dream. And that's you should also seek that out and watch it. It's, it's super cool. Nice. And the third one was Suspiria. Oh, yep. my favorite. Did you like it? I did. I liked it a lot. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, we'd be we'd be throwing down right now. Yeah, it's just so visually inventive. Yeah, and it's funny. I think the tagline for the movie is the only thing scarier than the last five minutes or the first eighty-two or something like that, which is so. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very so preposterous. Yeah, it seems almost like a like a Simpsons joke. But in a way, it, it almost makes sense because it it doesn't matter. It's just about this fever dream of an experience. Sure, I mean, and in coming off of uh, Doctor Caligari, like I could have done without the dialogue. It could yeah. have been a silent movie. Yeah, yeah. Just the, oh, yeah. the mood, everything. It was all visual, and the soundtrack was crazy. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, it's great by Goblin. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, a former guest of the show. Jarrett Blinkhorn and I went and saw Suspiria last year with a live performance by Goblin. Oh, that's doing the score. That's wild. Yeah, it was so cool. Uh, and it was like all a bunch of horror geeks in oh, the yeah, audience yeah. just losing their minds and 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 enjoying the experience. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah the the DVD says has a quote from somebody saying like uh, you know the scariest death scene in any movie. And I don't know which kill they were talking about, but I think it was. If I were to pick, I would say maybe the dog. Oh, the dog scene's great. I, I don't know if we've talked about this on mic before, but I really have a hard time with animal on human brutality. Really? It's, just, it's so it's so visceral. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and you know, I, I understand fully that it's fake, but there's a part of my brain that's like, that dog doesn't know that it's acting. <laughs> you haven't seen the new John Wick, have you? No. So in it, there is a character played by Halle Berry, and she has these three uh, trained attack dogs. Nope. And it's intense because they train them to actually go after these actors, these stunt performers. And in some cases, they're biting them in some of the most vulnerable spots on their body. But they're so padded and all that stuff, and they're taught a specific way to bite. It's crazy. But when you watch it, it's so... Yeah. It's, a, it's intense. Green Room had a scene with a dog oh, that I was yeah. not okay with. Oh, man. Green Room's another good one. Yeah. Yeah. Whew, violence. Oof. <laughs> I, it's funny. Uh, I've been watching a lot of horror still. And it's interesting. We've been talking a lot this this past month about like tropes and how they're connected to horror movies. And one thing that's fascinating to me is sometimes how I'll see some sort of horror trope and it's appealing to me. And I'm always curious when... Where's that line when something is a trope that you're looking for that you're excited about and sometimes you see it and you're like, oh, this is a trope and it's lazy. Yeah. Well, I think there's I think trope is the the flip side of the coin to cliche. Right. Sure. Sure. So it all depends on how you use it. So Mm -hmm. when we're saying trope, we're just saying like, oh, these are the tools that you could sort of play with. When we say it's a cliche, we're saying you're being lazy (laughs) with this trope. Right. Um, But there are certain things like. When I see blood in a movie that is maybe more like 
Suspiria style blood, like from the seventies, which yeah. is like just red paint. It looks like red paint. I love that, and something about that is exciting to me. So when I see a movie, a modern movie, use it, I get kind of excited because you don't see that too too often. So maybe in that sense, that's like a a horror trope from a certain time frame that hasn't been overused. Maybe it was at one point in time, but now it doesn't. So when I see it pop up, it's just like, oh yeah, I love that kind of horror movie blood. Yeah, I think I think uh, any time that you're sort of deliberately playing with the realism of something and sticking with blood like a. A lot of Japanese movies, like samurai movies, like um, oh yeah, Sanjuro. There's all the sprays of blood, and it's so, so over the top. But like, it's so, you know, uh, uh, evocative of of what's happening. And it's also that that difference between like that kind of horror that you watch that feels so real and visceral that it's almost it's hard to look at, and then this version of horror is almost playful and weird and. And like you said, over the top. So it almost makes it a little more palatable. Sure. I've been also watching a lot of uh, kung fu movies. Mm -hmm. And I watched this one called uh, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, which has one of the most remarkable final set pieces of any action movie I've ever seen, where they're fighting with these essentially like large staffs. Everyone has one. And there's probably like 40 guys in the room. And the choreography is just insane. And it's always... It's shot a lot in wide, you know, there's a lot of wide shots. So it, you're seeing all the action. And to watch watch all these people interacting with each other, it's crazy. But that movie also has a lot of these moments where they'll hit someone in the mouth with the pole and then pull it out and you'll see these fake teeth sticking out with like this, again, super red paint mm-hmm. of kind of blood. And you feel the impact because obviously you see someone getting hit in the mouth and it's... You, you wince but at the same time like at once you see the repercussions of it you kind of chuckle because it's so over the top right um but yeah so it's strange i've been trying to discern for myself what kind of tropes work and what don't work another genre that that kind of relies on a lot of tropes is film noir uh and, and one big trope from film noir is the voiceover narration we talk about this on the show a lot how sometimes narration doesn't work and all dependent on how the narration is used is it is it over explaining the things that we're already watching or is it giving us information that we haven't really seen an interesting example of that which kind of straddles those two lines uh is the subject of today's show and which is veronica mars and this is uh the tv show from 2000 which premiered in 2004 and is still running today uh, and we'll kind of get to that in a bit, I guess. But yeah, Veronica Mars is a show that I've actually watched a few times now, uh, and I'm all caught up. I watched the most recent season, which just premiered um, a few months ago. Uh, but this is a, a blind spot for you. So yeah, why don't you talk a bit about when you learned about the show and maybe why you've put it off? You know, I don't think I have an answer for either of those questions. So it would have premiered when I was in college, it just I know it wasn't on my radar at the time. I really don't know for sure when I became aware of it. I would assume that just from reading websites like the AV Club, I wasn't wa- I wasn't reading the regular coverage of the show. It would probably pop up on like year-end lists or when the cast were doing other things. I watched Heroes which <laughs> which Kristen Bell was who she played Veronica Mars she was on Heroes I forgot all about the fact that she was in 
heroes. I did too. I because I, I, I bailed on that show fairly yeah. early on, but you know, reading up on Veronica Mars reminded me. Um, yeah, and then you know, I watched Party Down, which Rob Thomas was the creator of Veronica, Veronica Mars. Later, went on to create that show, lead singer of Matchbox Twenty. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Did you know that? Um, He's not the not different Rob Thomas. Yes, but did you know that? He's also the creator of iZombie, and they had Rob Zombis. <laughs> they had Rob Thomas. <laughs> Get it? Yeah. Zombis. That, that's staying in. Is it? <laughs> Jesus. Um, they had Rob Thomas make an appearance on the show as a zombie playing a song on the show and whatnot. It was like this, after all these years of all these times, people making, saying like, "Are you, is this the same person? They finally kind of, called attention to it on one of his shows. Well, it's hard not to make that comparison. I mean, um, another famous example of this is, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, what show was it? I was going to make a bad joke about somebody named Smash Mouth, and I just, <laughs> I just couldn't think of it. Yes. Yeah. Close. So Fa- close. Famously, Joe Smash Mouth was a writer on 30 Rock. <laughs> there, done, <laughs> made it, moving on. Uh, yeah, I, and I, you know, and then Kristen Bell sort of became more of a, a cultural figure on my radar um, recently. Through... You're a big Frozen fan. Yes. Well, I've, I have young nieces, so... Um, Fair enough. I was like, well, I like her on The Good Place. I guess I guess I can sit through this. <laughs> yeah, so I, re- I really, like... I really didn't know anything about this. I didn't even know it was the kind of show it was, I think, until I sat down to watch it. Really? This was a real blind spot. I really knew absolutely nothing about it. Oh, uh, but then that must have been fun to go into this cold. Yeah, it was. So as someone who's been following the show, yeah, uh, presumably, were you, were you watching it when it aired initially? No. Okay. No. So what about, what about you? How did you sort of um, come to it? This was before streaming was really a thing so I was starting to pick up shows that I had missed on DVD so I had purchased Buffy and Angel and you know uh, Battlestar Galactica Uh, and this show was always kind of talked about in the same context as Buffy oh it's like a quippy teenager uh, who's resilient and tough and instead of uh, playing with Horror tropes, it's playing with noir tropes. Mm-hmm. Instantly, I was like, oh, that's definitely up my alley. Eventually, I just went and I, I purchased all three seasons. And then so Meg and I kind of plowed through them all pretty quickly. And then we stayed kind of up to date with it from that point on. So I contributed to the Kickstarter. Uh, and for those who are listening and aren't aware, um, the show was canceled after three seasons. And then uh, Rob Thomas did a Kickstarter to do a movie. Um, not necessarily to resolve the sh- the show, but to also sort of do something for the fans as a thank you, I guess. And he's always talked about the movie in those terms of like, this is more for the fans because they paid for it. <laughs> um, so I contributed to the Kickstarter and yeah, and then I was excited once the newest season was announced and, and we watched that as soon as it premiered. So uh, yeah, so I've always liked Kristen Bell, and I, but I, I really came to know her through this show. Why don't we just dip right into the show? Or for the purpose of this episode, you know, in the past we've kind of taken on a bit too much. Mm-hmm. And this show is very, it is episodic. Each episode kind of stands on its own, but there are overarching mysteries for each season. And so it's kind of tough to say, like, 
well, you can watch this episode, watch this episode, because there are certain pieces that wouldn't add up. And it also spoiled the bigger mystery for you. Right. And then to that point as well, uh, unlike previous episodes, um, I realized very quickly that doing too much research was going to spoil a lot. I mean, this is a show that's 15 years old. Even reading up on specifically the first episode, which I watched, started, you know, hints to what was coming next started popping up. So, so we chose to just focus on the pilot. And... The goal, really, of this episode was to introduce the show to you and to say, is there enough here in this episode for you to get excited about to continue watching the show? So, yeah, let's just kind of get into it. Veronica is our main character. Her name is Veronica Mars, and it starts off with uh, some of her narration. So she's the she narrates every episode, mm-hmm. uh, and she starts off by saying, this is my school. If you go here, your parents are either millionaires or your parents work for millionaires, which is, I think, a perfect introduction line for the whole show because it's really setting up what's at core, the core kind of theme of the show, which is this kind of class struggle. That's this biggest focus. The name of the high school is called Neptune. uh, And there are a lot of really, really wealthy kids that go here. And there's a lot of really poor kids that go here. They say Neptune is without a middle class, uh, which, which is which is pretty interesting. And this is, came out in 2004, but this is still like a big, this is a very big conversation we're having now about how the middle class is disappearing. So right off the gate, we're kind of getting into the show where it, it felt different from a lot of other things at the time, even though, yeah, it's got that kind of like kind of witty dialogue and, and quippy, quippy banter between the characters it felt like it was its subject matter was a little different. Sure, but that's also a great setup for noir because I mean a lot of these hard-boiled detective stories like Philip Marlowe and you know stuff by Raymond Chandler you're getting these very wealthy people with problems coming to these disreputable private eyes. Yeah. And so it is there is a very wide gulf between the the sort of protagonists and the underbelly and you know usually the the wealthy people who are desperate to keep their dirty laundry secret or trying to they're 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 sort of stepping out of their bubble to to bring in somebody to do something you know that that they're uncomfortable with doing themselves the biggest difference between this and i guess you know a lot of older film noir is that veronica is our protagonist uh usually it's kind of like a philip marlowe type character uh where it's the private detective and Veronica is a private detective, sort of. She goes to high school, but she works for her dad, who has his own um, firm called Mars Investigations. And again, in, in true noir fashion, is a sort of disgraced former cop. Yep. A, he used to be the sheriff, um, and then uh, through a sequence of events that we'll talk about in a little bit, is forced out of that position and, and takes up work as a private eye. It starts off with Veronica at the school, and we, we are introduced to Wallace, who is um, duct taped to the flagpole, and it says snitch is written on his chest. Uh, and so Veronica kind of goes and cuts him down. It cuts to Veronica asleep during class. And it's kind of implied that, you know, she sort of leads a double life, uh, like most uh, film noir protagonists. Yeah, they but, do a lot of sleeping during the day. Yes. <laughs> Her teacher's reading, uh, they're talking about an essay on man by Alexander Pope. And asked 
when asking Veronica about it, she summarizes it by saying, life's a bitch until you die, <laughs> which is great because we're, we're already within the first like three to four minutes, we're getting a Veronica's perception of her school, of the haves and the have-nots, her connection to that, her relationship to, to her school and to her teacher and how she combats that and her perspective on life. Which also, while brief and crass, was not wrong. <laughs> yeah, and and the teacher actually kind of confirms that. Mm-hmm. It says almost the same thing that you just said. Yeah, yeah. Um, but after that, um, the principal kind of asked to search her locker, and it's this great little bit because Veronica knows. Yeah, she 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 sort of she has someone who tips her off when they're doing these random locker checks. So yeah. when they open when the principal opens her locker, it's completely empty except for like a picture of his face in a, like a, a construction paper heart. Yeah, um, and she's like, I'm so embarrassed. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a great. great. Yeah, but the other great little beat there is the the cop searching her locker has a has a dog, and the dog starts getting a little restless. And Veronica just looks at the dog and says, "Calm down, Bruiser." In establishing that she knows this dog, she's communicated with this dog, and the dog likes her because the dog listens to her right away. All these great little character beats with Veronica just right off the gate. And we already kind of, you get a real good sense of who she is right at the beginning, which is interesting because we learn even more about her as the episode progresses. Right. And again, not to keep bringing this up, and, and please tell me to stop if you want me to not do this every time there is a a noir trope that the show manages to get in right off the right out of the gate but there's always that uh you know that that scene where there's the detective and then there's the you know the actual police officer and some sort of authority figure and the the private eye and the cop have some sort of relationship and he the cops feeding him information and it's usually in the service of embarrassing the authority figure that the private eye will choose to reveal that he has certain information or he has a certain relationship and he's sort of rubbing it in the face of those authorities. So again, Veronica is very quickly established as a noir protagonist in sort of the, the, the grand tradition of them. What I think is what works really well about this episode too is there's so much information to get out in order to establish the world. It's many characters Veronica's um, sort of her quest for the first season. Mm-hmm. I like the way the episode reveals it. So it's not like it doesn't get everything over with right up front. It paces it out throughout the episode. So other episodes maybe will just kind of give you all the important stuff in an info dump right up front. But this kind of, you know, spaces it out throughout the episode. Yeah. I mean, as a pilot episode, it, its job really is to establish the world and the characters and and give you that taste of what the story to come is going to be. So a lot of the first half of this episode is really spent on um, establishing who she is, Wallace, the sort of um, assignment she takes on revolving around him, and then slowly the the reveal of what becomes the overarching storyline for the season, the, the quest. Yep. Her quest that you mentioned uh, comes into focus and and starts to overlap. Through Veronica's narration, we learn about Jake Kane, who's a software billionaire. His connection to Veronica is through her his son Duncan Kane, uh, and we learn that Veronica used to date Duncan. And this kind of helped Veronica get in with the, I guess the haves, the wealthy people, because 
even when her father was uh, the sheriff of the town, they didn't necessarily have money. They just had access to the money. Yeah, he had a position of respect, and that respect was not rooted in any sort of uh, financial worth. And then we learn um, what happened to Wallace and why he was uh, duct taped to the flagpole. And we're introduced to Weevil, who is the head of this biker gang. And apparently Wallace works in a convenience store and a couple of Weevil's guys, uh, Hector and Felix, stole some stuff. Yeah, stole some booze. Yep. And uh, Wallace is new to town. Correct. They stuff booze in their jacket. They get up and like pay for a candy bar or something. And he tripped the silent alarm, not knowing that he was invoking the, the rage of this teenage biker gang. Doesn't know the rules of town. Doesn't know how the... The sheriff operates or the biker gang operates. So as soon as he leaves, the sheriff is there and they've already kind of apprehended these two um, biker gang members. Weevil's pissed off because he calls Wallace a snitch. And um, the sheriff we're introduced to is Don Lamb, who's this sort of kind of bro-y. He's just a, he's kind of a douchebag. Yeah, you get the sense that he's, he's crooked. It almost seems like he doesn't care. It almost his crookedness doesn't really come from a place of any sort of self motivation. It just seems to be maybe apathy. Mm-hmm. Like this is the easier thing for him to do. He knows the hierarchy of the town, and it that's maybe easier to 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 navigate than to actually put forth any effort. But he asks Wallace what happened, and Wallace says, "Oh, they didn't take anything." And then he goes and he checks the videotape, and sure enough, they did. This means Wallace is is has aggravated the sheriff and he's aggravated Weevil and his gang. And the sheriff says to him, Don Lamb says to him, you should go ask the wizard for some courage, I think. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that go ask the wizard is like his badass catchphrase, which again shows his laziness because he he, uses it again. He uses it again. You know, it's it's important because later on it's how Veronica knows that, oh, you you got involved with this asshole. And immediately following this, we are introduced to Mars Investigation. So Veronica shows up and we're kind of, before this, we we sort of know that she's dabbles in this sort of thing, but now it shows that she actually works for her father. She helps him. And we're also introduced to Cliff McCormick, who's an attorney, and he kind of works with um, the Mars Investigation gang. And he's a great character. And, and as you progress through the show, you'll you'll learn more about him. Um, he's a pretty good foil for the the two Mars characters. But we're also introduced to uh, more importantly Keith Mars, which is the guy from dad. Just Shoot Me. He's from Just Shoot Me. Yep. <laughs> Elliot was his name. Elliot. Why do I remember as much as I do about Just Shoot Me? I don't know. I think I watched that show a lot. Really? Yeah. I don't have any memory of it. I probably watched some of it. I think I remember watching some stuff because it had some people from Kids in the Hall on it. Maybe. I know Brian Posehn became a oh, recurring character. Yeah. He was Kevin oh, from no. the mailroom. Yeah, and, and didn't um, David, David Cross? David Cross played uh, in Veronica Mars's dad's brother. In Wasn't Odakirk on it too? He may have been. I know that those three showed up in an episode of News Radio as Dave Foley's uh, oh, yeah. barbershop quartet buddies from college. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, I miss News Radio. I should rewatch that. That's a good show. Mm-hmm. Back to Keith Mars. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at, at this moment, Celeste Kane, who um, is Jake Kane's wife, is there and asking Keith to investigate her husband. So this is another noir trope. Yep. Uh, where we get 
I wouldn't say she's a femme fatale because we don't really know too much about her yet. But she is a a wealthy yes. woman of of status and power who is um, sort of begrudgingly stepping foot in the you know the the lowly private eyes office and asking for help. Yeah, doesn't it- want to be there. Lets it be known that she doesn't want to be there. But here's the thing: you're the only guy who can deal with this and uh through veronica's narration we learn that that the canes hate her in particular but you know keith says we need money so we're gonna do this right this is a a crucial uh, moment right here and we get our our first real flashback of the show and it's interesting because the flashbacks are all like super contrasty with uh really blown out highlights and like really like super saturated colors and the whole show is like kind of like washed in like yellows and greens and reds so it's interesting because we've we've been talking about noir a lot but this kind of plays with a lot of the noir visual language but kind of tweaks it just a bit to be maybe a little more southern california i mean what's interesting about that is a lot of the the sort of classic noir is set in los angeles yeah but because of the time a lot of these films you know, like the Bogart movies and stuff like that. Yeah, they're black and white, so you don't get the the color of of California. Yeah. But have you ever read any Raymond Chandler? I've never read any Chandler because the because the character of the city and the beaches and all of that kind of you know comes to life in a way that uh, that you don't quite get in black and white. Yeah. We learn about um, Veronica's best friend Lily Kane. Uh, it shows Veronica and. And Lily, and they're at a car wash, and Lily says, I have a secret. And that's right when we learn that Veronica's best friend is dead. And uh, this became a super famous case throughout the the country because, you know, these are all really wealthy elites from from Neptune. Right. Well, Cain, the the father, she, Veronica says, was... uh, the inventor of streaming video? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, he, he was involved in some tech innovation that you know in the early 2000s we you know now we take for granted things like that yeah. but um, he made she said he made something like a billion dollars yeah. within a half hour or something yeah and like that, that even his even his uh the people who who his housekeepers were millionaires yeah. he like really seemed to have earned the respect and adoration of the community because by all counts and so far from what i've seen like it seems like he he did do something to sort of share that wealth wealth around. Uh, and this is when we learned that when Keith was sheriff, he believed that Jake Kane was um, Lily's father, was the murderer. And so he pursued this um, pretty doggedly, uh, and the town hated him for it, or at least most of the town. <laughs> and then someone in the sheriff's office leaked uh, the evidence video of Lily's body. Uh, and it's like this, she's like, kind of splayed out next to a, a swimming pool with like a massive head wound. Mm-hmm. It's just blood everywhere. And that's when Keith got kind of ousted as sheriff. And right. that's when everyone kind of turned their backs on both Keith and Veronica. Uh, and we also learn in the process that Veronica's mom, Leanne, um, is kind of angry with Keith with how he's kind of dealt with this, and then she takes off. And so she's no longer in the picture. While Keith is off kind of doing uh, his own thing, Veronica goes to spy on on Jake Kane um, at this location called the Camelot, which is like one of those seedy hotels. I bring up Camelot because it is like one of those recurring kind of locations in the show. 
Um, and it's another noir kind of tropey thing where there's the seedy hotel mm-hmm. that they're always going to spy on. And and Jake Kane shows up and there's a woman at the door, but we don't know who the woman is. And Veronica's trying to take pictures. And this is when Weevil shows up. And this is another great little bit um, because Weevil's pissed at Veronica for helping out uh, Wallace. And Veronica uh, immediately goes, uh, six her dog on him. And it's great because the dog's name is Backup. Right, yeah, because earlier her, her dad tells her, don't, if you're going to do this, bring Backup with you. Yeah. And you know you don't know what that means until she yeah. sicks the dog. It's a great on. little reveal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little, I think like a French bulldog, something like, no, maybe just a regular bulldog. I don't know. It's a big dog. Uh, and she also has a stun gun. And I think that the the scene kind of really illustrates that Veronica is, is pretty tough. It's like she can take care of herself. herself. And if she's intimidated, she doesn't let you know that she's intimidated. There's like a, a whole biker gang here, and she really kind of has control of the situation. Um, but she does make a deal with Wallace to help get Hector and Felix out of trouble for stealing the alcohol, all in exchange to get Wallace kind of off the hook. Off the hook. Uh, and so we're establishing here pretty early on that Veronica is willing to play the game mm-hmm. in order to get what she needs to help the people closest to her. Whether that means breaking the law herself, um, that's fine. Right here is almost the midway point of the episode, and there's a kicker of a line, probably one of the most important lines of the whole show, and it's part of her narration, and she says, want to know how I lost my virginity? So do I. Doesn't uh, Weevil or one of his guys like make some reference? Well, Weevil's pretty... There's a lot of kind of like, he's not coming on to her, but he's kind of, he's kind of being a creep. Yeah, he's constantly telling her about how big his dick is, and that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, and then and then she then she drops the virginity line. Yeah, and it's kind of like a, it's like one of those kind of like you know massive weights that's just kind of dropped on your chest moment. No. There's no ambiguity about what she means. And essentially, after Lily's death, she went to a party and she got roofied, uh, so she doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't she know anything raped. about it. Yeah. We've talked about on the show during the Penelope Spheres episode about how oftentimes rape can be used as a way for writers to sort of make you have sympathy for a character without actually putting in any work. I don't really feel that this does that, especially because Veronica has agency in this scenario. Yeah, I think, you know, it's not being used as a shortcut to sort of drum up dramatic tension or the stakes yeah um although it does become part of i I don't like using this term but it is like a mystery that she is trying to solve i mean i'm not going to spoil anything for you but i'm not entirely convinced that the way that resolved works right um but again like i'm not trying to be coy um because it is a complicated explanation. Um, mm-hmm. But when you get there, um, it's a, an interesting conversation that we, we might want to have. Sure, but in the context of, of this episode and the sort of snapshot of this community, in yeah. this world that she lives in, you know, it's, it's, a, it's another example of the haves and the have-nots and this class struggle. You know, she is, she is raped at this party thrown by all the rich kids. And then the aftermath of that is that the police don't believe her and that suddenly she has this um, reputation and, and these rumors following her around that she that she's a slut. And that uh, going forward in this episode, they're um, 
there are characters who are friends of her ex-boyfriends who make some really, really awful comments to that effect. Because they're the rich kids, they they feel untouchable. You know, they have that sort of, that ability to, you know, and I don't know who did it, yeah. but there is that that sense that the people who did have done it before and this is just something they get away with. Yeah, it certainly plays into the class struggles and also uh, the way the town kind of treats women in general mm-hmm. and all these people in power because everyone that they've introduced that is in power have all been white males. And all the people that work for the millionaires are all um, of different ethnicities. It's interesting after she gets roofied because it shows her it just it's this lingering shot and it's again a flashback scene so it's all that high contrasty kind of blown out look but she's out of focus the whole time it's actually a pretty i thought it's some pretty effective filmmaking especially for a television show in 2004 i wasn't really anticipating that kind of thought put into its composition and its its framing and its color she talks about right after the scene how she's she's she says i'm no longer that girl almost as if this is this turning point of how she went from being this person who hung out with all the rich kids and she was popular and now she is you know closed off stubborn fighting for the truth of her friend's death and who raped her right after this moment um logan pulls up and we haven't really talked about logan at all but he is a pretty big figure in the in the show and so he drives up and Duncan, uh, Duncan Kane is with him and he starts picking on um, Veronica. And Dun- Duncan doesn't really like to talk to Veronica since they split up. But it's interesting how she says, I'm no longer that girl because Logan in this moment says, you used to be fun, which is a startling, it's fucked up, mm-hmm. especially to learn everything that's happened to her, that how callous he was. But one thing we haven't mentioned is that Logan is... Lily Kane's ex-boyfriend. Right. So, you know, Logan has lost a lot too. I don't know if we necessarily get any sympathy for Logan in this episode because he's just such an unrepentant heel. Yeah. But, you know, his girlfriend was murdered. <laughs> the Lily Kane murder, the, the the video of her, of the evidence of her body was, was leaked. So everyone saw it and he was privy to that. And he kind of blames Veronica for that and blames Veronica's dad for that. Um, so while he is a dick, we kind of, I guess, sort of understand maybe why he's a dick. Yeah, well, I think what's, what we're seeing here is that everybody who is touched by this murder is reacting to it very differently. And a lot of people are reacting to it in ways that are not healthy yeah. or not productive. Even Veronica. Yeah, sure. In a lot of ways. Um, and this is kind of one of the core tenets of the show is that Veronica doesn't always make the best choices for herself or her friends but she often thinks that she's right and I think that's one of the most fascinating things about the show because she is a flawed protagonist but always a compelling one and one that you're you're trying to understand well you do understand why she makes the choices she makes even while you're shaking your head being like oh why are you doing this Veronica puts this plan into place in order to get um, Wallace out uh, or get Wallace into the good graces of Weevil and his gang. And so she commissions this guy named Corny to make uh, a fake bong. And they, they plant it on Logan. And then the bong gets confiscated. Brought to the brought sheriff's to the, station. Yep. Um, and then... It's rigged with like a smoke bomb. Yes. And then so 
Wallace and Veronica trigger it. The fire department comes in. Veronica has connections in the fire department because they still like her dad. So I believe they say it's the, the chief. Makes a switch, takes the bong, and puts in... No, uh, he, he takes the he, he takes take, the the tape from the convenience store. Takes it, yeah, and swaps it with a video that Veronica recorded of one of the deputies yeah. getting a blowjob from a stripper. Right? No, it was, I don't know if it was the deputy. It, it could have been um, the chief. Oh, I thought it was just one of his guys. Uh, you know, either way, it made him look foolish. It made him look bad. So uh, immediately they kind of say like, "Well, you know, this is a mistrial, so mm-hmm. these guys are going to go free." Mm-hmm. All the while, Veronica's trying to figure out who this woman is uh that was talking to jake kane at the hotel and keith has been like no we're not going to do this we're not going to we're not going to he's shutting her down so she knows that something big is up right well because she brought a photo to her father who took one look at it and then crumbled it and tossed it and said drop it yeah so you know clear tell that there there is more to the story than veronica had anticipated Veronica gives the original convenience store tape to Wallace, so he has this sort of leverage over Weevil, and Weevil decides to now help Veronica. So she's they sort of have a, an uneasy alliance, mm-hmm. but Logan tries to get revenge for having the bong planted in his locker, and then Weevil comes to her rescue, essentially. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of already playing all these people against each other uh, and manipulating people. And you'll see as the show progresses that that oftentimes backfires on her. The end of the episode essentially sets up the whole season and and the big mysteries. So the, the biggest one, obviously, is who killed Lily Kane. The next one is who raped v- Veronica. And then Veronica discovers that the woman in the hotel is her mother. So the next mystery is what does her mother have to do with Jake Kane and how is she going to get her family back together because it sets up the ending of the show and this is an important line for the for the mythology of the show because she says I will put my family back together and she goes is that mushy well you know what they say Veronica Mars she's a marshmallow uh, and that's important because that's how they refer to the fans the fans are called the marshmallows uh, so that's been something that is always talked about when talked about in, in the context of this show um, but that's that's the pilot in a nutshell, and and again, like it's hard to really talk too too much about you know beyond the pilot because it reveals so much. Yeah, and it's also hard to talk about succinctly because, like a lot of noir, there are a it's a huge cast of characters with a lot of interconnected relationships and complex sort of hierarchies and. Mm-hmm. As we sort of were explaining it, it, you know, even though I just watched it the other day, I was starting to get confused and <laughs> keep track of people. Yeah, I think for me, you know, I th- maybe this is the third or fourth time I've watched the pilot, and I know all these characters so well, so it's pretty easy to follow. But yeah, it's easy to take for granted that the first time into this, it's maybe hard to keep track of everybody because there are a lot of characters. You're introduced to her whole social circle or her former social circle. They're setting up her new social circle. And then you also have, you know, the police department, um, her dad, the lawyer, and everyone involved with the Lily Kane case. But I think what makes the pilot work is Veronica. Uh, She's just like, they really do a great job of establishing who 
she is. Um, and she's played like really well by, by Kristen Bell. Right out the gate, you kind of understand her. Yeah, I did see in um, the little research I did is that she thought that she got the part because she had the cheerleader looks, but she had the attitude that she needed, that sort of outsider attitude, which uh, for this character, you know, makes a lot of sense. She, you know, whatever, uh, not that it's all about looks, but the popular crowd, you know, they have, they are, they are tend to be superficial, especially in fiction. So she had to look the part to be there in the first place, but she had to have something to her that sort of gave the character the grit and the, the kind of gumption that you need for, for this type of character. And she does that really well. I think that's also maybe what made that, you could say those same exact things about Buffy. Sarah Michelle Gellar had to be able to do the same exact things. Yeah. I wanted to read a, a quote from um, Rowan Kaiser, who is a writer at the AV Club, and he reviewed every episode of Veronica Mars. And he made this great comparison about Buffy and Veronica and the big difference between them. But he said, Buffy quips because she doesn't believe what's happening to her. Veronica quips because she does believe it, which I think is 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 pretty great because Buffy's always incredulous, like, oh, God, like put upon and mm-hmm. I can't believe I have to be the chosen one. And so it's like a coping mechanism for her. And Veronica is always like, I know the bullshit that's going on in this town. And that's why she does it. Yeah, either way, it's a defense mechanism. Do you see the Buffy con- comparisons, or? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's you know it's a it's a large cast of young characters steeped in these sort of genre traditions, you know, set in, in like a, a high school drama. Uh, I think it's hard not to look at the two. Uh, I, I think it's hard not to compare the two. You've seen all of Buffy. I have seen all of Buffy. Yeah, yeah. I think this is visually a lot more stylish yeah oh for sure yeah i mean this this feels like uh this feels more like film than television yeah this was like right at the precipice i think when everything was starting to make that big change yeah i mean i knowing that it was from 2004 when i yeah. turned it on and it wasn't in you know the four three aspect ratio i mm-hmm. was i was like oh okay good yeah uh, <laughs> yeah i think you know there's a lot of um Sort of wide angles and a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of tilts, slightly and, off kilter, and it it sort of taps into that as, the aesthetic that that I really enjoy. It um it didn't feel as early two thousands as I was expecting. It felt a little. When you say early two thousands, like what kind of shows are you talking about? I don't even know. Okay, it felt more like something from the late nineties. Like sure. it felt like it had that same sort of visual whatever that visual quality of something like uh, that movie Go. Yeah, you know what I mean, sure. like bright colors, sort of that, um, that sort of like post Tarantino kind of like kinetic energy, that sort of thing, um, and that's sort of a sweet spot where like yeah, everything's really bright. It'd be easy to buy that like these characters all went to like a rave or something. Yeah, after it's school. a very yellow show. It is. Yeah, it's almost like like those early Instagram filters. Sure. Well, yeah. but you know, to your point about the the setting something the air is charged with something whether that's in it whether that yellow is just like the warm california sun or like this sort of oppressive thing that you can't get away from you know it it really it it works well here what the show does well is kind of balancing to like this the big mysteries that we talked about and each episode kind of introduces like these smaller mysteries usually all self-contained within one an episode it's usually like a classmate of veronica's that comes up and has a problem and asks veronica to solve it so one of the big comparisons for the show is is nancy drew because she is a teenager and she solves mysteries 
but it's so much darker than that. So I think it, that's the one thing that surprised me when I started watching it is, yeah, it's it's funny and, and really kind of charming. Yeah, well, I think the I think the elevator pitch for this and for Buffy is that it's, uh, you know, a teeny bopper horror movie or yeah. I mean, or a teeny bopper horror show or a teeny bopper detective show. And this didn't feel teeny bopper. Sure. It didn't. Um, I, I think I had a sort of, um, you know, you see CW and you have an expectation for the type of. Yeah story that's going to everybody's going to be attractive yeah, yeah. um really uh, bad musical choices this the music is and this is it's definitely of its time it's kind of like that indie pop mm-hmm. sort of thing um it feels like at that 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 point in time when maybe synthesizers were starting to become another prevalent instrument for these type of bands so you're getting a little more of those kind of dreamy kind of uh, for lack of a better terms kind of indie pop yeah but it's Better than I was expecting. Sure, I, 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 I was expecting to just like cringe every time a song came on. And yeah, yeah, there's the a few, uh, there's a few decent songs. You watched the pilot, so you didn't really see the theme song, did you? No. Well, you're gonna get used to it if you continue watching. So here it is. Yeah, that's not great. And I but I know that. How do I know that? I don't know. That's the Dandy Warhols. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's one of those songs where I'm not sure how I feel about it because I've heard it so many mm-hmm. times that I don't know if I've been brainwashed to be like, "Yes, that's a Veronica Mars theme song and I'm excited to watch Veronica Mars." I don't think it's great, but it does have that great opening line where it's just where he says, "A long time ago we used to be friends," which does feel perfect for mm-hmm. the show. Sure. But we were just watching, actually, a, a clip of, of the opening montage along with the song and, and introduced all the characters. And we haven't really gotten into the relationship between Veronica and her father because I think that's the core of the show. And one kind of complaint that's kind of thrown at the show oftentimes is that the mysteries aren't always great, especially the standalone ones. Mm-hmm. Like Sometimes they're fine. Sometimes they're disposable. But the core of the show, Veronica and her, the relationship with her father, is what really makes it worth watching, even when the mysteries aren't super exciting. And I think the the pilot does a pretty good job of setting up how they interact with each other. It doesn't feel like father daughter. No, he he definitely has a respect for her and, and a sort of. Uh, I think I think there is a, a sort of trope in in uh, late '90s and maybe early 2000s teen comedies where like there is that dad who who has that sort of not quite a dad like relationship with yeah. with his kids, and it's oftentimes like an oldest daughter. Uh, I don't know why I'm thinking of uh she's all that, but I feel <laughs> like they I feel like there was that kind of sure. dad character. Yeah. Didn't they make fun of that in oh was it not not another teen movie, I oh, think. Oh god, maybe. Probably. Yeah. And yeah, it's usually like he's kind of goofy and he's, you know, just kind of like a big dumb kid and then he, you know, the, yeah. and then he always pulls out the important life lesson yeah. speech at the end. Veronica's dad doesn't feel like that. No. Um you know, he definitely he's broken. And you can tell that the two of them have sort of had to rely on each other in ways that, you know, uh, uh, you know, most fathers and daughters don't have to. There's sort of the weight of 
the you know uh, her mother leaving and the weight of the community turning its back on them and the weight of him being ousted from his profession and the sort of ripple effects in their lives have been altered and they really only have each other and yeah. they've, they've sort of uh, they are partners in a way um, even if it seems that he doesn't necessarily actively or um, publicly encourage or endorse her moonlighting as a private eye he he seems he allows it and he knows that he can't stop her does that make sense yeah oh yeah they're definitely ostracized mm-hmm. the town sees them as pariahs yeah they're the only two who sort of believe each other because i mean there there's another version of this show where veronica was obsessed with finding the true finding the truth of lily's murder but at the same time doesn't believe her dad you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I think I think there could have been like an antagonistic thing, and I think this show would have been a, it would have been one bad beat too many. You know what I mean? So we we learn that Keith knows that his wife was in that hotel, and that he's keeping that from Veronica. So there is that. There's still that moment where he's still he's trying to be her father and to protect her. There are yeah there there is a there is a line in their sort of newly defined relationship that. When she crosses it, like that's this is when I'm your dad again, and like this is what I'm telling you to do, and you have to do it now because it's for your own good. He knows something she doesn't. But most of this episode too establishes the relationship as being sort of quippy and back and forth with with the the banter. Like his number one, um, his catchphrase for her is "Who's your daddy?" and he says it in that sort of jokey tone of like "Who's your daddy?" and, and she's like, "Gross, don't do yeah. that." But at the same time, you could tell that she loves it. Yeah. Like, yeah, my dad's an idiot. Yeah, he makes dad jokes. He makes a lot of dad jokes, but they're actually oftentimes pretty funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like he talks about uh, he was once a cool dad, and and then he's like, oh, no, those are lyrics from a Springsteen song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, And he shows up and he says um, he he makes money from... um, He makes money from from finding a bail jumper. And so he's like, we're going to eat like the lower middle class family that we aspire to be Mm -hmm. we're having steaks and you know he's kind of it's funny because like when we talk about it it almost seems like wacky shtick but it's not there's something about it and i think that's partly because of the way it was played yeah that that was such a homer line too the yeah the lower middle class we aspire to be keith mars is played by enrico colatoni from the aforementioned uh just shoot just shoot me but he's he's so good in this their rapport, I think that's the one thing that works so well in this. Yeah, they have great chemistry together. Because um, I do think maybe one of the problems of this this episode is it does introduce too many characters. There are still more characters to be introduced. And and some of the characters here, like I, I think um, Duncan Kane, which is the son of Jake Kane, Veronica's former boyfriend, that actor is... Not so great. No. Oh, but him and Logan are also just like very like generic vanilla douchey white guys. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that maybe separates Logan a bit is you get a little bit of. He's got a little more menace. Yeah. Yeah. There's something dark in Logan. I think that separates him a bit from that usual form of broy kind of um, surfer dudes. You know, like I said earlier, Logan is a big part of the show. So, and I, I'm not giving anything away, but they do interesting things with him. Mm-hmm. I'll just say that. And Wallace is sort of like Veronica's uh, sidekick, I guess. Usually, her gopher 
does what she needs him to do to help out with cases and whatnot. That's played by Percy Daggs, uh, and he he's pretty solid, I think, for the most part. I, I don't think a lot of the ancillary characters really have a lot to do to really kind of show off their acting capabilities in this pilot. Okay. I was going to ask if you meant in this particular episode or throughout the show. Yeah. I don't think um, Teddy Dunn, again, who plays Duncan Kane, I don't, I never really warm to him. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I, I like a lot of these people. Yeah. Weevil has a lot of presence on screen. Yeah. Yeah. He he has an interesting presence. Not something that you'd, you'd normally expect from a, a character from like a bike biker game. Yeah. Right? No. He's very, he's very charming. He has that sort of He's more of a scoundrel and less of a badass, if that makes. Do you know what I mean? Like he could, he could. Um, He's a lot like Veronica. Yeah, he could charm his way out of a situation and not necessarily have to punch his way out of one. Sure. What I think the show does as well is, as it progresses, it kind of shows how even Veronica has her own form of privilege because uh, things that that she takes for granted that Weevil cannot get away with. Um, and again, the show really exploits those kind of relationships and and the hierarchy. So even though. Veronica and her dad maybe are, as they say, lower middle class. They're still still people below them, mm-hmm. and they don't get away with things. And I think really that's what makes this show great overall is that it is a show that handles class really, really well that you don't really see in a lot of these type of shows. And you had mentioned like other, oh, you know, you have a fear of the OC, um, the WB show or or – is that the network or CW or CW and, and I think maybe that's probably what a lot of those shows that you're thinking of do is it just doesn't really deal with that at all it's just mostly wealthy yeah it's a lot of really pretty people yeah glossy aspirational lifestyle kind of shit yeah and even shows that followed Veronica Mars like Gossip Girl and stuff like that dealt a lot more with wealthy people mm-hmm. that are attractive wealthy people and didn't really get into the dynamics of a community not to say that all these other shows have to do that. Right. But, but I think that's I think, what makes this show so distinctive. Sure. It stands out when when it does uh, happen and it happens well. Going forward, did you think that the mysteries were compelling enough to to want to keep watching? Or did you think that Veronica herself was interesting enough to compel you to continue watching? Yeah, I think the character is really compelling. And, I, I you know, I, I, I don't know that we really... Um, express this too too much but Kristen Bell is just super charming and yeah she's a really uh, her her screen presence is is really captivating and you know knowing her from the good place specifically it's it's interesting to see her in in this different type of role although I mean that that thing about her is still there but yeah I'm interested in checking out more I I, I really like noir and I like the way this plays with those tropes in this type of environment. Yeah, I'm definitely interested to 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 watch a little bit more and, and see if maybe the mystery unfolds a bit in a way that keeps me captivated. I don't know that I'm in any rush to go burn through the rest of the what, four seasons in a movie. But I def uh, there's enough there for me to to wanna watch a few more, see where it goes next and, and really get a better sense of how I feel about it. I do think one of the strengths of the show is that everything it sets up in the pilot, it solves or reveals by the final episode of the first season. And so the next season is a whole different mystery. Really? Yeah. Okay, so that's that's actually kind of interesting because that was a question I had coming out of watching the first episode is, are there threads 
of this mystery that were still unresolved in this recent season that came out 15 years later? Nope. It does what Buffy does. Each season is complete. It'll set up things and kind of it'll point in different directions and set things up maybe. But each episode, each season kind of works on its own. Yeah. The character arcs, I'm assuming, are what continue forward. Yeah. Correct. After the plot stuff is resolved. Yep. Yeah. The third season's interesting because it was having trouble in the ratings, so tried a little experiment. So there's like a few mini mysteries mm-hmm. within the third season that get so he like resolves the first mystery like after I don't know eight or so episodes I will say that the third season which was originally the series finale when it got canceled the ending is is pretty in line with a film noir ending and if it had if we had never gotten any more I I would have been bummed because I love the character so much but it would have been a really interesting ending okay but yes very much in keeping with film noir endings and if you have watched any film noir you probably know that that's not a good thing sure kind of a left field resolution to something that doesn't really matter (laughs) journey not the destination kind of stuff no incest this time that i remember there could be incest in the show but anyway um oh is there i'm not gonna spoil anything (laughs) well that's a yes no well you'll see oh is somebody think they're related and they're not and then they like Find out they're not. You will see. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's good. The movie's for fans, like mm-hmm. I said up front. Um, it has its charming moments, especially because he wanted to include everyone that had been a part of the show as much as he possibly could, at least surviving cast members. Uh, so it's just jam-packed, and it's all centered around a high school reunion. So oh, okay. That's pretty fun. The mystery and the movie is pretty bad. And the newest season is actually probably my second favorite season. Interesting. Uh, the first season's probably my favorite, just because I think that's the strongest overarching mystery. But the new season's pretty great, although it ends on a note that I think, I don't know if they earn it. Are they planning on doing more? I know he wants to. It's like his his favorite kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He keeps coming back to it. So I don't know. I think it did well enough, so it's possible that they'll, they'll do another season. But he kind of sees it as like, oh, Veronica is a character that I'd love to just, and even Kristen Bell has said this, like, this is a character that I'd, I'd keep doing forever if I could. Well, I mean, the fact that they're not doing a story that spans now decades, it lends itself well to that. Especially with the film noir trappings because- Yeah, someone will always get murdered. Yeah, but beyond that, a lot of film noir is about regret and about having trouble letting go of your past and yeah. your past mistakes and these things that still haunt you. And that lends well to the lead actress aging over Mm -hmm. time and checking in with her every so many years. It gives it this kind of added weight where, you know, the first season is this high school set noir with the, you know, a Nancy Drew-esque character solving crimes during high school. So you can imagine as time progresses that that changes quite a bit and the baggage that comes with that sticks around. And I think that's why it's, it's it's a pretty great show. The fact that I enjoyed this and I am interested, I would assume that your recommendation is to watch more Veronica Mars. But if taking that off the table, where would you recommend I go next? Or someone who may be listening. Well, I was curious to see what you were going to recommend because I know there's one very specific thing that's in this sort of wheelhouse. You know, it's probably going to be the same thing. Yeah. I, don't, I mean- It might I, not be. Should we do the- The one, two, three? Yeah. All right. All right. One, two, three. Brick. Brick. Yep. Brick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just seems obvious, but it's great. Mm-hmm. I think Brick is, is pretty wonderful. And it, again, it's playing with, 
with noir tropes. And I think it's more purposeful with how it deconstructs and plays with the tropes. Right. I mean, it really digs in yeah. and hits them hard. Uh, Brick, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, was the first film by Ryan Johnson, who directed The Last Jedi, uh, Looper. He's done some great TV stuff. but uh, Two of the best episodes of Breaking Bad. Uh, Brick stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yep. and he um, essentially is a detective, but a teenager. And it's all of the noir trappings are, are really you know crammed into this high school story. And you really do um, what was I remember being striking watching that is how well high school hierarchies and social standings applied themselves to this type of genre stuff. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and he kind of continues to do that with all of his movies where Brothers Bloom is sort of playing with the con man tropes and Looper is playing with a lot of time travel tropes and Last Jedi was playing with a lot of Star Wars tropes. Uh, so he always likes to kind of take genres and kind of sort of deconstruct them and, and maybe show why they work and why he likes these genres. Mm-hmm. Um I think he's an interesting filmmaker, and I'm I'm pretty excited for his new movie, which is also a mystery. Yeah, yeah. Is there other uh, noir, uh, either film or or anything that? Uh... One of my favorites is Out of the Past by um, Jacques Turner. Uh, he directed Cat People, uh, Night of the Demon, which are two of my favorite horror movies. But this is uh, one of my favorite noirs. It stars Robert Mitchum, and again, it plays with all the kind of. It's what you'd expect from a. a a noir movie, but executed flawlessly. Yeah, it's pretty great. It has all the femme fatales and double crossing and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. beautifully filmed. And I don't think we've talked about it on the show, and I know I've talked to you about this repeatedly. Because we probably haven't talked about it too much, I should probably say that if you love film noir and you love something that's taking the noir tropes and playing with them and deconstructing them and doing new things, Twin Peaks is the way to go. <laughs> Twin Peaks is the show. Yep. It's like one of my favorite things ever. Always any chance we could plug Twin Peaks, I'm plugging it. Sure. Yep. Uh, same can be said for The Big Lebowski, which takes all of the yep. noir trappings and slaps it on a stoner bowling movie. Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Yeah. 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 We could keep going, but we won't. Uh, Do you have a favorite noir, though? Lebowski is up there. I really like Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. I like The Long Goodbye a lot, too. Uh, and I know that's a divisive one because it is based on... Uh, the book of the same title by Raymond Chandler. Philip Marlowe is sort of the classic noir detective. Robert Altman's adaptation takes Marlowe out of the 40s, 50s, sort of like during and post-World War II era Los Angeles, transplanted into the early 70s. So it very much looks like a like an early 70s Los Angeles. It has that kind of... Um, new Hollywood feel to its approach. And uh, Elliot Gould is not who I had in mind when I would read Philip Marlowe Mysteries, but I think he's fantastic. And I think, you know, what if, if anything, what you sort of, sort of are coming away from from this episode is that noir lends itself well to a lot of stuff. If you think of it as being black and white, kind of uh, co-opting German expressionism, set in Los Angeles at a very specific time in American history, it really works anytime, any place. And um, Altman's The Long Goodbye is a great example of that. Kind of uh, just shifting it up a couple of decades, and all those characters still work the same way. 
that version of L.A. Uh, is just as seedy and is just as weird as the one Raymond Chandler wrote about. It's a lot of fun. And it does a gimmick that I love, which is that the score consists of one song that is just done in different styles, depending on if he's at a bar or at a cocktail party or in a grocery store, and it's Muzak. Yeah, it's something you don't see too often mm-hmm. nowadays. And John Williams wrote that song. Is that all we have to say about noir? I think so. Have you seen Search Party? No. It's pretty good. Oh, is that with... Um, Ali Shawkat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's another kind of murder mystery type mm-hmm. thing. Maybe more in like the murder mystery kind of vein than it is noir. But again, it's it's kind of dealing with what makes it interesting is it's about how we project our own ideas and our own narratives onto other people's stories mm-hmm. and problems. And then when that doesn't adhere to our perception of it, things go wrong. <laughs> we remain rigid to our own perception of whatever happened. It's really fascinating. It's really funny. Nice. Uh, and it pokes fun at kind of like millennials and mm-hmm. stuff like that. In a loving way, not in a, why are you buying avocado sandwiches way? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're responsible for the, the economy because you're buying too many avocado sandwiches. And now you're not spending enough money. What are we talking about next time? <laughs> in a sort of weird kind of through line, we're going to be talking about some more teenage tropes, I guess. We're, we are going to be talking about Archie comics. That's pretty cool. I've never read any Archie comics. I haven't either. Yeah. I um, don't know. I don't know too much about it. No. I mean, I know the four characters, are, you know, the, the big four, Archie, Jughead, Betty, and Veronica. Mm-hmm. My wife, Sandra, uh, is a big Riverdale fan. Okay. I haven't seen it. Uh, I mean, I've kind of been in and out. It's very- yeah. um, I hear it steals a lot from Twin Peaks. Yep. We can't <laughs> escape it. You can't. It's just always going to be there. It's weird because every time I see like posters for it and stuff like that, the guy that plays Archie, like the way they dyed his hair just- feels really strange. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... It's very artificial, it's, right? Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, it, I think it's as close to orange as yeah. they could get it without him looking like a, you know, like a, like a kind of like a punk with a pompadour or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, so we'll be joined by our friend Ayla Alquist, um, who is a big Archie Comics fan. So she's going to be kind of guiding us through it. She um, she made some recommendations based on, uh, I believe the artist's name is Dan DiCarlo. Okay. Is, uh, she really enjoys his work on Archie stuff. So, yeah, that's what we're going to be doing. We've talked a lot about comics on the show, and that's kind of a a big part of the comics industry. Archie's been around for a long, long time, and it's still... Still going. Still going. So uh, it's pretty crazy that I've never read any. Yeah, same. excited. Yeah. Nice. All right. All right. We'll talk to you later. See you then. Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss?, You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also find us on social media at What Did We Miss? And you can drop us a line at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And as always, thank you to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence. And if you want to learn more about them, look them up on social media at What Cheer Club and on their website at whatcheerclub.org.